You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. My guest today is Christine Emba, who writes about ideas for the Washington Post's opinions section. Before coming to the Post in 2015, Christine was the Hilton Kramer Fellow in Criticism at the New Criterion and a deputy, deputy editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit, focusing on technology and innovation. Her new book is called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. Yes, this is a podcast about sex, so be warned. Uh, I think it's a really interesting, it's a great book. And I think she brings up a lot of really important uh, ideas and, 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 the, and the fact that we don't talk about uh, the subject matter um, uh, enough. Uh, so enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Christine Emba, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I specifically wanted to book you for the podcast because I knew it would put me outside of my comfort zone, but I didn't really interrogate that idea much until I read the book. And then I had to question myself, like, why did I think this topic, sex, would make me uncomfortable? So I brought it up to my therapist and we started accumulating this list of the things we don't talk about with the depth and nuance they deserve, sex, money, death love, grief, trauma, basically the most important facets of human life go on a kind of intellectual mute. Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the title of this book is Rethinking Sex, and it's, you know, exactly for those reasons you described. Sex is something that's kind of in the air, like it's in our ads, it's in books, it's in TV we watch, it's obviously what we talk about with people, whether we're talking about relationships like marriage or being, you know, out on the dating market, but we just rarely talk about what we mean when we talk about sex. We sort of talk around the question or who's doing what, but what does it mean when someone is in a relationship or not in a relationship? What does like the physical act of sex mean to us? What does it do to us? And where do our assumptions come from? We just don't talk about that. And part of it, I think, is that we're afraid of There are so many unspoken social norms around how we talk about relationships and sex that we don't want to break. But I think we also have unspoken assumptions that we've given ourselves or unspoken queries about things that we have done or believe that we worry that if we do interrogate them, 
we'll like feel like we need to blame ourselves or we might feel like we're doing something wrong and nobody wants to be the person who's getting sex wrong no, <laughs> so we'd rather just not talk about it no that looks bad on a resume uh i i wonder too is it also i mean we're living in a time where systems are being challenged like they've never been challenged before and many of us a lot of good thinking, you know, uh, seemingly woke uh, people are waking up to, oh, well, I didn't really get it uh, all the way through. And this feels like you're also just saying, yeah, it's not that just doesn't belong in issues of race. It's, it also belongs in in sex. Right. I mean, this is this is a, just another place where um, these unspoken things uh, uh, create maybe a lot more problems than we're ready to admit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you make a great analogy with race. One of the things that I've written about as a Washington Post columnist, where I also write about race and other topics, in addition to the sex beat, um, is the idea that we can't really fix anything. We can't fix something if we have not talked about what the problem is, if we have not acknowledged sort of what's going on underground in our minds. Otherwise, again, we're just talking around the question. And even when the Me Too movement happened and we were talking all about, you know, oh, Harvey Weinstein's like a terrible person. Like, okay, those cases are kind of easy. Like, don't assault actresses in a hotel room. (laughs) Sure. But what about what we do every day as individuals? It might not be criminal, but it might still be making people feel bad. It might be inappropriate in some way. But until we get those questions out in the open... We can't really address them. And I feel like that's where that movement left off and sort of the questions, the interpersonal day-to-day, like maybe borderline things that we just aren't sure of, but yet haven't confronted and therefore haven't been able to, you know, really fix. So Second City is just launching um, these uh, uh, workplace anti-harassment course online, um, which might surprise some people because we're a comedy theater. But the the idea actually came when we had to take that training ourselves. And it was so bad. I mean, just so bad. And one of the things that comedy does, hopefully, is allow you to talk about an elephant in the room. I think you use a little bit of humor in in your book also to sort of uh, weave in and out of these topics. I try to. Um, Yeah, it it can be a rough topic, you know, sex and sexual assault and sort of bad things that happen. But also humans are kind of goofy. And the way that we (laughs) even talk about our sort of most intimate uh, encounters and like the things that are meaningful to us can be sort of shot through with irony or humor or just like, wow, that that's a thing that just happened. This is crazy. Um, And acknowledging that, I think that everybody can be kind of weird about things makes it a lot easier also to talk about a tough subject. So you grew up as an evangelical Christian that converted to Catholicism in college. And I'm curious if that, did that contribute to a particular kind of silence around sex or a POV? It definitely did. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I'll acknowledge that that's maybe not the average trajectory. I say in the book that most people, you know, in college are not actually converting from, you know, one form of Christian need to a more orthodox one, but you know, something else entirely. Um, But I think growing up in Christian circles, especially there, there was this purity culture ideal um, where, you know, sex was sort of something that you didn't talk about, except to say that you weren't doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after you got married, it was assumed that you would, 
be having sex with your partner and it would be the greatest ever because Christians have to prove they're fun too. But again, it was never like really talked about, like, why are we not doing this? Or like, what does it actually mean? Um, And I think Catholicism actually has a much broader and clearer kind of theology of the body and like understanding about like what sex means according to like the church and their faith. And like, that's explained a bit more, but definitely as a kid. And also I would say I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, where we were an abstinence only curriculum. So (laughs) that did not help me learn about sex. Um, Yeah. There was, there was an understanding that sex was a big deal, but it wasn't clear why. And it also wasn't clear why it was in some ways bad, you know, to have it Mm -hmm. at a certain time, but that it would be great if you had it at a second at a different time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, And it also, it makes me think one of my favorite books uh, of the past uh, year, and, and I had her on the podcast was Annie Murphy Paul, who wrote The Extended Mind which is all about how we get thinking wrong. Our metaphors are bad for thinking because that cancels out the fact that uh, we feel things uh, emotionally that are part of our thinking. You, they're not separate. And you write in the book, you say, quote, our sexuality isn't an isolated behavior. And I think this is like a crucial point, both in Annie's work and in your work, which is like, you, we, we're not learning anything when we're not considering all the other factors that are involved with this stuff. It's like context and nuance actually matter. Right, exactly. And how it intertwines with so many other parts of our lives, like whether we're talking about sort of modesty debates or like, yeah, what to teach kids in school or, you know, how men and women interact in the workplace. Um, You can't really talk about any of those without kind of touching on the idea of sex or what sex means. And then if there's sort of a giant void there, (laughs) um, how do you really talk about any of those other things? How do you really explain the world in a full and helpful way? Uh, I think it comes up a lot in the book, and and I want to jump into this idea around consent, um, because we talk about that a lot in our field, because it's different than if you're staging a play and you have like an intimacy coach or whatever. When you're improvising a scene with someone else, you might touch them and you know and and you're maybe you're having a romantic scene like what does that mean when you're when you're improvising it's, it gets tricky um uh you say quote sex is complex consent treats it like a problem of arithmetic can you break that down for us yeah definitely um so i mean this book is in part just a, a rethinking of consent as our prevailing sexual ethic Uh, you know, the thing that defines good sex versus bad sex. And I'm kind of asserting that consent is a floor. It's not a ceiling. Mm -hmm. Um, Consent is a great binary, right? Like consent is really useful for telling you, is this a criminal act Mm -hmm. or is this not a criminal act? Um, It's like, did I get a yes or no? But if you want to be having good sex and by good, I don't just mean pleasurable, but also ethical, like also good for the other person, morally good. Theoretically, you want to be doing more than saying, well, I didn't rape them. So we're all good here. <laughs> <I'd say. laughs> you know, like that's kind of arithmetic. There's, there's sort of the binary, like criminal, non-criminal. If it's consensual, then it's non-criminal and that's good. But that's 
a small question. That shouldn't be the question. Our question should be much larger and more complicated than that. Um, not just, you know, rape or not rape, but how did this make that person feel? How did this make me feel? Like, was this right in the circumstances? Was this good for both of us? Um, does it align with how we want to treat other people as humans? It's just a much bigger and broader question than yes or no. Well, in the, in the sort of brilliant pivot you make in the following chapter, which is called We're Liberated and We're Miserable, is that it is complicated by our cultural uh, uh, attitudes. Like, you talk about we've never been more tolerant about sex in like every permutation. And while that should feel like a net positive, it, it isn't necessarily all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, post-sexual revolution, I think that we, you know, adopted almost what I, what I described as uncritical sex positivity. This idea that, you know, sex is great. Uh, The more sex you have, the better actually. And really the problem is repression And other than, you know, people stopping other people from having sex, there's nothing that can really be critiqued. You know, it's just your preference. Um, But that then doesn't really leave any room to critique things that need to be critiqued. You know, it's possible that some encounters are better or worse than others. Uh, It is true, in fact, that you can treat people in better or worse ways and we can decide which are good and which are bad. Um, I think the focus on just total freedom, I guess, um, total liberation without, you know, a thought to what the consequences might be and also just what it means to live in a society (laughs) and how our actions do, in fact, affect other people um, has contributed to a sexual culture that actually leaves a lot of people out in the cold. Well, you talk about freedom uh, and, and and again, feels like a net positive, but but also doesn't take into account what it means to be a human being in this effort of living with other human beings. It, 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 it's much like that uh, other uh, uh, issue of not taking into account, you know, uh, everything else. It's It's like, no, we're always doing this with other people <laughs> in some regard, right? Right. Absolutely. There's this idea that we have as a culture that, you know, we're private beings, like my sex life is nobody else's business. Um, The sort of like, well, if you don't want to do X behavior, don't do it. (laughs) And don't bother about what I'm doing. But at the same time, you know, sex is almost a communal activity, like generally, we're doing it with another person. Um, We learn things from our encounters, and then take them to future encounters. Um, the expectations that we set up as individuals and as groups then, you know, permeate other parts of our lives and other circles. I think one example that I used was the, you know, popularity of kind of more extreme sex acts due to like a rise in porn um, and sort of a mainstreaming of especially young people seeing it. And you could say that, you know, this is the thing that I like to do in the bedroom, it's my bedroom. You should stay out of it. I'm a private individual. But as certain acts get more popular, it does become more likely that, say, your kid sister will be, you know, dating a teen who has seen those on, you know, some website and then tries them out with her. Or, you know, if we're dating in a society where we share ideas, it means you're more likely to run into somebody else um, who has this idea of sex that has become sort of 
culturally accepted, but you aren't ready for. And yeah. we're seeing that happen a lot. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that popped out in the book was the army hammer thing around cannibalism and a writer for slate calling it kink shaming. And you're like, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> that seems bad. I think we can say that that's bad. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of what I meant by, you know, this uncritical sex positivity, like just, you know, saying, you know, um, sorry, it's just okay. had like a little brain split, you know, the phrase like between two consenting adults um, as sort of like a cover for anything like it's it's between two consenting adults. So it's fine. It, don't worry about it. It's none of your business. It's like, well, even if two adults are consenting, I think we can, we should be able to critique and say that, you know, maybe having the desire to like murder and disembowel your partner is worse than having a desire to like care for your partner. Maybe, maybe we can say that one of those things is better than the other. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> like I think maybe it can be a dialogue. <laughs> oh, Some my. things are better than others. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think the, the reason this is so funny to us is, you know, we, we laugh because things are true. And what we're laughing about is the fact that we don't have this, this conversation. We've just moved to other, like, like everything's good. And you're like, that's not, ah. Uh. And I think there's just a, in general, I don't know if it's generational or what, but it's like, we are leaving the ethic and moral conversation in a lot of different areas by the wayside. Like I don't see a lot of people be it, it. And I guess we're, look, I mean, that's reflected in, in our governance. It's reflected in all the things around us, our corporations. So it, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it is depressing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, I think this also goes back to sort of the, the liberal individualist ideal um, where, you know, we all want to be sort of individuals who are not controlled by other people who make up their own minds. And that is healthy for living in a pluralistic society. Um, it is, you know, an ideal that's kind of enshrined into our constitution, etc. That said, we do live in a society um, and we do interact with people and we have to decide the best way to do that and what we accept and what we don't accept as a society. And I think when it comes to sex, especially, you know, there's kind of a disconnect happening that I tried to get into in the book a little bit. I think there are a lot of people who actually have strong feelings about what they think is good, what they think is bad, what they would prefer and not prefer, but almost feel an outside pressure to not kink shame, to yeah. not impart their moral beliefs onto someone else because we're afraid of, you know, judging other people or being judged by other people. And also, of course, we've seen how, especially in, you know, the sexual realm, sort of moral rules have been used to marginalize people like the LGBT community. Yeah. And we don't want to do that. But yet we have to make judgments somehow. Mm -hmm. We have to decide how to live together. And if people feel like they want to make judgments, but they'll somehow be like criticized or canceled by society for stating those judgments aloud, there's kind of a psychic disconnect happening that makes a lot right. of people feel a little bit crazy in some way. Yeah. There's a really lovely quote that I pulled from the book that I actually sent to a colleague today talking about a completely other matter. Uh, it's, it's, it's germane to this conversation and I think to others where you write, quote, 
the binary choice between agency and victimhood is actually preventing us from establishing the foundation of basic human dignity that we need in order to build a society. And that just rang loud and clear to me that, that we've, we've set up these, these ends that don't allow for anything in between, which is where all the good stuff is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a problem. Uh, it's a problem in, in discussions about sex and, and in the act and all that, and a problem in our, in our culture. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's funny in trying to write this book, there were some, there are a lot of questions actually that I feel like got a bit meta, you know, yeah. a little bit theoretical. And it was, I was struggling to bring them down to earth at times. And this was one of them. <laughs> so yeah. I'm really glad that it, that it rang true for you. But yeah, we have this, we really do have an, a false binary, it feels like. There's the idea that you can either be an agent, which is great, or a victim, which is bad. Right. And by acknowledging vulnerability or acknowledging some like differences or uniqueness or even failings that you might have, that's seen as sort of making yourself a victim. And the better thing to do would be to just say that you've overcome it all, that you're kind of impermeable, and then you can be an agent um, of your own fate and somebody who, you know, exists fully in society. But neither of those are true, right? Nope. Like, humans are different and unique, and we all have vulnerabilities. And a good society would be one that actually acknowledges that, acknowledges that people have feelings <laughs> that people are different from one each from one another that people have needs that should be respected by other people you shouldn't have to be a perfect almost robotic agent to survive that's actually a bad society so this false binary between the good and bad is actually what's wrong not the idea that people are vulnerable in different ways yeah I, I was literally working on um I'm, I'm writing the follow-up to my book yes and and uh i was working on it this morning and one of the things i i sort of say in there is is the problem i've got with a lot of business books because i do interview a lot of business authors on here is it's always a seven-step solution to every problem you have it's like that's impossible because <laughs> context changes and the one <laughs> thing about our work in improvisation is it's it's all about no we're going to hone a variety of skills listening, collaboration, um, leadership, all, all these different things that then you can apply in different measures depending on where you sit at the moment. So so I can be a victim, you know, and a change agent in the same day, uh, depending <laughs> on where I'm sitting. And this is, again, yet, yet another uh, 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 frame that you offer that we've just simplified things so much that we can't see what's true is what I feel Mm -hmm. like you're saying a lot in the book. Yeah. In some ways, I guess I'm one of the things that I'm observing in our sexual culture is yeah. A lack of nuance, um, a lack of willingness to understand people kind of as people and individuals with sort of hopes and dreams and, you know, feelings rather than sort of, impermeable individuals who make the world make of the world what they will and can do whatever they want and escape unscathed. Um, This is like one of the the false assumptions about just sex in general, that I kind of try and poke a hole in, in the book, right? That there's almost this idea that the best way to have sex now in our current moment is to just be chill. 
Like be cool about it. Like don't have feelings. Feelings are very lame. Just like, right. 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 You know, hang out, but people have feelings. <laughs> really, um, and, and this is really intimate. This is, that, yeah. that's a, a very vulnerable situation. It's extremely, you know, normal. And one might even say natural to have feelings when you have sex. <laughs> um, and <laughs> to deny that that's the case is almost gaslighting. Um, I wanted to say to you, I can't believe we're having this conversation, but of course, <laughs> no. that's why we're having this conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Like these are things that we should be talking about and yet we aren't. And so when people experience them, they sort of feel like there's something wrong with them, not that there's something that the culture is silent about, or that there's something that, you know, the broader environment is not telling them. Well, and, and, you know, it also depends on who your partner is at any given moment. I I mean, I certainly know I was married once and and married a second time and, and this one stuck. And and part of the reason I think too, was I I certainly had some pen. I had some stuff that I hadn't thought through in terms of my sexual life. And, And my wife was like terrific and open and was like, we can talk about these things. And it was like, cause I used to be kind of a jealous person. She's like, you're going to have crushes on people. You know what? You should say that out loud because then you're going <laughs> to just, you, you're, it's not going to turn into a thing. And I'm like, Oh, that's actually a very good technique. And it's like, and so it was great. Um, you, you do offer um, uh, so, some really good ideas uh, about how to sort of reframe how we talk about sex and, and you, and you go backwards, you go to Thomas Aquinas and this idea of willing the good of the other. I love that. That's such a gentle phrase that seems to fit perfectly with when we talk about sex, if we're willing the good of the other, then we're going to be empathetic and we're going to pay attention and we're not just going to pay attention to the word that is said, but the eyes that are saying the word, right? So we can kind of get an idea for what are you really thinking? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it is kind of reaching back in time. It's, it's Thomas Aquinas, who's like a Catholic saint, but by way of Aristotle, actually. Right. right. Um, and, you know, when I talk about how consent is not enough as a sexual ethic, I think that's true. But then the next question, obviously, is, so, so what is? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm suggesting that willing the good of the other might be a better sexual ethic because it takes away that sort of arithmetic binary feel it gets us past like did the person say yes to okay but is this good for them is this good for you like how do you how do you actually think of their humanity not just getting the getting the sex basically getting the yes or getting the no but it's also more complicated than just a binary of consent because it you know, assumes that you understand what the good is. To will the good of the other, you kind of have to have some understanding of, you know, what is good, what is virtue, what is the other person looking for that would be good for them? What what are you looking for that would actually be good for you? Um, and that means that you have to know yourself. And I would suggest also maybe have to know the other person in some way, yeah. um, which at a certain point might actually mean that you have less sex because you might have to wait to learn who they are. Right, 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 right. I don't know if I'm going to leave this story in, uh, but I want to have it for our conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I was just wondering 
I wasn't sure. I should have asked this before we started, but I just wasn't sure how explicit you wanted this conversation to You're get. You're doing great. I think okay. we're doing terrific so okay, far. Okay, cool. I'm very happy. That's why, that's why with what I'm about to bring up, I might cut it out. Anyway, but I want you to hear it. So my dental hygienist is really funny. And uh, I've been married for 25 years. She's my age, but she's still on the dating scene. And she just mm-hmm. always gives me like really great dating stories. And so I was in there, this is like two trips ago. And she's like, I have got a doozy for you. And I'm like, what? And she was like, well, I met this guy totally like with his dog at the park. And he was just smart and sweet. I'm going to show you a picture. And he looks like a handsome, good guy. And they uh, go back to his apartment, go on the roof and drink some wine. And he's a perfect gentleman. And then out of nowhere, and like, they, they haven't, they haven't kissed, they haven't do anything. He says, can I pee in your mouth? what oh no (laughs) and her first thought was i'm a dental hygienist (laughs) and then her second thought was no and she like excused herself and (laughs) left and he he was still texting her like hey do you you want to go out and like no i i don't (laughs) yeah (laughs) wow um I mean, I have a story in my book, too, about a sort of similar kind of weird dating situation where a girl who I don't know, you know, comes up to me at a party because she knows I'm writing a book about sexual ethics. And it's like, so I started dating this guy. He's like, really nice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he chokes me sometimes. And I don't love that. But like, is that OK? Is that normal? It's not and- OK. And I want to be like, what? <laughs> if somebody is strangling you and you don't like it, that's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. But, <laughs> but there is this, because we don't talk about in our society as much what, you know, what is good and what is bad and what our standards are, because we have this sort of uncritical <laughs> sex positivity. Um, I think many women especially feel like they don't have room to criticize or they don't have room to push back against these desires that are clearly coming from, you know, like porn or somewhere else. Um, Because you're like, well, like if it's just between two consenting adults and, you know, everybody has their preferences, like who am I to kink shame them? Or who am I to like, do I have the standing to, to critique this? And I, I want people to, you know, begin to think like, yes, I do. It's again, it's okay for me to say that this crazy thing seems crazy and not feel bad about it. Like I'm not the one who's nuts. It's our culture. That's nuts. If yeah. like, this is what we're doing these days and calling it normal. Right. 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 Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your SN story, but I'm curious, like when I finished writing my book, which was a lot about how we take our improv principles into businesses and, and make human beings more successful in collaborating with each other. It, it forced me to actually walk the walk. Um, and I'm curious when you finished writing your book, did something, did anything change in, in like click and change for you in terms of your behavior in this realm? Oh my gosh. Well, writing, just writing the book itself was a whole experience because I yeah. came to, I came to the question in an almost academic way. You know, I was writing columns about the Me Too movement um, and also seeing you know, just reactions to the movement where it's like we have these clear cases, but then we have stories like Cat Person and like the Aziz and Sorry debacle right, right. where it was like, oh, I thought we fixed this with consent. But then so many people, so many women are coming forward and saying like, yeah, this terrible experience of sex is normal for me. 
And I was like, how, how can this be? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like if the Me Too movement has happened, shouldn't things be better by now? And so it was an academic question. And then as I started thinking through the question of sex, like I really just began to think both about the question, but also like my past and my experiences and then talking to people because, you know, whenever a note for people who are thinking about doing this, if you tell people you're writing a book about sex, everybody will sidle up to you and tell them, yeah, tell you like, Oh, story. <laughs> um, and I was also myself like still, you know, dating at the time. Um, and I definitely, I think, saw sex and like these questions everywhere. So I think I had kind of like a a double scrutiny of almost every interaction that I had. Um, And by the end of the book, yeah, I think my behaviors had changed. I think I sort of really and fully imbibed the idea of, of willing the good of the other. And also, you know, trying to both de-pedestalize and pedestalize sex, like both say that it is, it is important, you know, It is something that we can care about. And also it's something that we should talk about and it doesn't have to be a secret. And, you know, our culture kind of makes it out to be everything. Like you have to have a great sex life has to be really active. Otherwise you're lame and not liberated. And that's not the case, but at the same time, you know, it's not nothing. Right. I think, I think it's this concept of both things can be true and that gets tricky for people. They don't, mm-hmm. they, they, it's, it's, the, we really desperately want to know, uh, it, we, it's that black and white thinking. We want to know, is it good or is it bad? And we're just like obsessed with that when in fact it's different at different times for a lot of different reasons. Right. And we have to be able to acknowledge that and talk about that with other people so that we're, you know, really sharing the same idea when we're engaging in this intimate act with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a yes hand story for us? I do. Okay, great. <laughs> um, it's less salacious in the book, actually. <laughs> okay, that's um, fine. But my yes and story is actually about how I came to be an opinion columnist at the Washington Post. Um, it may have been kind of one of the yes andiest things that's, that I've ever done. Hmm. Um, but I was a young editor, um, I guess maybe hopefully I am still a young editor, Um, (laughs) but I just finished like a small fellowship at a small magazine in New York city. And I was trying to find another job in journalism. It was basically like, if I could find a job, I guess I can be a journalist. If I can't, maybe that's a sign. And a friend of a friend um, put me into contact over email with Fred Hyatt, um, who recently died Um, a wonderful person. He was the editor of the Washington Post opinion page. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, I don't know what to say to this person. This is insane. Um, We ended up talking on the phone a bit about, you know, ideas and well, like what I could contribute to the post if I like wanted to submit a few blog posts or something. And he was like, yeah, okay. Well, and you know, I've always wondered if we should just like have a blog that's like just about ideas. Um, Mm. So if you have any thoughts on like what that would look like, we'd love to hear them. And then he hung up and I was like, yes, I do have thoughts on that. And I'm just going to make up a role and send it to you. So I just created like out of thin air, this idea for an ideas blog Mm -hmm. and sent it back to Fred Hyatt, even though he had not asked for this for me. Um, And he actually liked it. And we talked a little bit more and he was like, oh, and 
you know, this, if you're ever in DC, like come, come by the office and, you know, maybe we can like meet each other in person. And so it's like, yes, this is great. And, uh, in fact, I'm going to be in DC next week. I had no plans to oh, do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it was a moment where I was like, Love yes, the move. And let's just, let's, let's go for this. And so uh-huh. I just turned up in his office <laughs> the next week. And like my one sort of like business dress <laughs> yes. to like try and convince him to a, like, let me start this blog at the Washington post and like be have a job in the opinion section. And Fred is kind of famous for mentoring or was famous for mentoring and taking chances on young journalists. And he did like, after that, I ended up working at the Washington post, starting an ideas blog and becoming an opinion columnist. And I think it's because I was able to say sort of, yes, the opportunity and then just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Really usually don't. That's terrific. I love the story. The book is called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Christine Emba, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast, it's by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
adulthood, no one survives.